Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello and welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast. I'm Robin Ashton, Climate Risk and Strategy Advisor here at Energetics. As we are recording this podcast across multiple locations and in the spirit of reconciliation, Energetics acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people today. On the 9th of August, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released its sixth assessment report. The report is a comprehensive analysis of the physical science associated with climate change. And with its release, the IPC announced that climate change is widespread, rapid and intensifying. Today, we want to explore what the findings mean in physical terms for Australia and potential impacts for Australian businesses and our communities. I am joined by my colleague and fellow climate risk consultant, Anna Cooper. Anna is a lawyer with expertise in international and domestic climate policy settings, regulation, compliance, and climate-related litigation. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, Robin. I'm also delighted to be joined by Dr. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. Sarah is a 2017 Future Fellow awardee at the School of Science UNSW Canberra. She was previously based at the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW Sydney and is currently a Chief Investigator with the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, if we can just start very high level, what are the main headline findings of the AR6 for you? So, I think, you know, the, the biggest one is climate change is unequivocal. Um, the climate is changing and where to blame for that. So, as you mentioned in your introduction, this is the sixth phase of the IPCC process. Um, so, it's been going on for about 30 years now. There's been six reports over that years. And with each report, that sort of certainty around the fact that A, the climate is changing, and B, it's because of us has only increased. And now we're at the stage where it's irrefutable. It, you know, so that, that's, the, I think, the main finding. Like, if there was one finding of IPCC, that would be it. Um, but there's also important findings around, you know, the viability of limiting global warming to both 1.5 and 2 degrees warming. Yes, it's not completely off the table if some miracle happened tomorrow, but for all intents and purposes, it's just completely out of reach by now. And the IPCC states that, you know, really we only have seven or eight years and drastic cuts to do to actually limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it's just, it's not economically possible. Um, You know, there's also a lot more confidence around other um, statements they make. So, you know, for example, changes in extremes like heat waves, droughts, uh, rainfall extremes, the certainty around those statements has drastically increased, I think, since the last IPCC report. And also, you know, something that's close to my heart is um, understanding the human influence behind specific extreme events. That that sort of research field has heavily developed in the last seven or eight years. So there's a lot, we know a lot more information and have a lot more inf- you know, information about how uh, climate change is driving um, specific extreme events now. So, you know, we can categ- we can actually say that, yes, depending on the extreme event that you're looking at, climate change is playing a pivotal role. Okay, so in your answer there, you mentioned these figures around two degrees, three degrees warming. 
Um, we see those bodied about the media quite a lot in terms of the, the climatic heating. Um, but what does it actually mean for our kind of day-to-day -day experiences of weather systems? Yeah, so it's it's really hard, and I do struggle with this, you know, trying to explain, well, you know, one, two, three, four, five degrees warming, choose your threshold, what it means on a day-to-day -day scale. It's not, you know, on a day-to-day -day scale, sometimes five degrees sounds really nice, especially right now in the middle of winter, but it's not about necessarily what happens on a day-to-day, -day. it's how it influences um you know, things like climate extremes, so certain events that might occur on a day-to-day -day scale um, and how extreme they'll be and how how intense they'll be. So it's it's difficult to pick up what those changes mean every single day of the year, whether it's now or in um, 2050 or 2100, but we can certainly say, well, you know, with, those, with that extra threshold of warming, cert there'll be certain changes that we expect to see around that threshold. So, for example, the certain increase we, we might see in heat wave frequency or the certain intensity we might expe expect for heat waves at that intensity or how will extreme rainfall change once we reach two, three, four degrees warming. So it's more about looking at certain types of events and other shifts in the climate as well, not so much about the day-to-day -day scale. Um, but there is some research, I guess, suggesting that certain systems might change with this level, like you know, certain levels of warming. Um, but I don't really think the IPCC went into too much detail about that because there's, a, you know, there's a lot of research going into that, and um, it is difficult to say on that day-to-day -day scale. So sticking with extremes, um, you gave some good examples there around, say, uh, heat waves, um, extreme rain events. I guess. Do you have an idea of, say, the magnitude of of change of those extreme events? Yeah, look, it, it depends. So I, I study heat waves for a living, so I you know, know a lot about them. Um, it depends where you are. So tropical regions, so think North Australia, think, you know, um, uh, South Asia, um, you know, Central America, they'll see larger changes in the frequency of heat waves. So that's because they already have like a really small climate distribution. And if you kind of warm that climate by just a little bit, all of a sudden these extreme events um, are occurring much more often. So they'll see a lot more heat waves, but it's the higher latitudes. So, you know, think maybe like Tassie, even Adelaide and Melbourne, um, especially places like S Siberia and Northern Europe, they're going to see, they will see changes in um, heat wave frequency, but they'll see greater changes in heat wave intensity. And that, that really scales with global warming. Um, you know, the, the more we warm, the higher that change in frequency will be and also the higher the intensity. Um, you know, different climate models might give you different specific values, but they all show the same trend in, you know, in the state, the same steepness in that line, so to say, that with each global warming threshold, even with, with each half degree global warming threshold, there's a, you know, a clear shift in the frequency intensity and duration of heat waves. It's just that those regional values depend on, on the, you know, the baseline climate in those locations. And I, I guess we, we have actually seen evidence of this very recently with the heating event that we saw in Canada. Um, I know that was a heat dome effect, but essentially it's driven by the same underlying systems. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, heat dome is basically uh, an atmospheric system. So it's an optic system. We say that it's a high pressure system or heat waves are somewhat joined to a high pressure system and allow and a heat dome it just basically allows the heat to build up in the atmosphere. The high pressure system is stable and the heat can't go anywhere. It just stays under that high pressure system and it just builds up and you know feeds into itself. Um, and they can happen anywhere. We've had them here in Australia, a heat wave a few years ago in Sydney was you know attributed to one like there was a heat dome at that time. But we've also got to remember that you know with a heat dome and a change in the baseline climate, which is just over one degree Celsius globally speaking, there's more heat to build up. 
And not only is there more, more heat on one day, but if the heat wave lasts for 10 days, you've got that cumulative effect over the 10 days. So that that makes them worse. And that's, you know, effectively what happened over um, the northern US and Canada. These heat waves went on forever and, you know, records were absolutely smashed. So it's that kind of combination of what we would call a natural driver, which is that heat dome and climate change kind of exacerbating those conditions. And that's that's unfortunately that's going to occur more often um, dependent on the, the global warming threshold that we warm by. OK, so if we uh, shift our view a little closer to home, um, one of the recent kind of extreme events we have experienced was with the 2019-2020 summer bushfires. Um, and we saw catastrophic devastation, essentially, across southern Australia. Um, at the time, the adjective that was used to describe these bushfires was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why they were viewed as unprecedented? We'd never experienced anything like that before. Never. So it was also 2019 was our hottest and you know one of our driest years on record. So it's like extremes are already being smashed in that regard, and those conditions primed um, the bushfire season. And on top of that, going into summer, we had what we called a positive Indian Ocean dipole phase, which is a hot summer, hot spring effectively. It only lasts for a few months, but it was another primer. And then you've got climate change on top of that. So all of those ingredients basically made this. I guess, perfect cake for hot weather and bushfire weather to occur. And we've just never seen anything of that extremity. The fires were incredibly hot. Um, We'd never seen anything of, you know, basically the whole southeast coast of Australia burning at the one time. So the area, like the extent. Um, And, you know, know, how much was going on at that particular point in time. You know, anecdotally, my my husband's an RFS member and we were watching the footage of the news and, you know, the, the ground was burnt, basically. It was ash. And I can't remember the exact temperature he said, but he said for that to burn and for it to be ash, it's a you know, hugely intense fire and it's not something that he's ever experienced in his firefighting career. So it's, you know, those sorts of, you know, that, that sheer intensity and the fact that we had lots of what we call pyrocumulonimbus fires. So they're the fires that go all the way up into the atmosphere and interact with the atmosphere and basically right there in weather system and there's, you know, lightning and thunder and it's, you know, they're pretty terrible, pretty frightening. We had a lot of those. Um, and they're only associated with the most severe fire weather conditions. And unfortunately, with climate change, we're expected to see more of them. And, you know, I guess 2019, 2020 was you know, a window into the future that these types, you know, when a fire occurs, there's a much greater probability that it will be a lot worse. So you've just described them as a, a window into the future. I guess one question I do have is, were they unforeseen? No, straight up no. So... Bushfires are complex. It's not something like heat waves where it's just reliant on one climate variable. Heat waves are basically reliant on, on temperature. They can also be, um, humidity can also be incorporated with them, but, you know, temperature is the main driver of a heat wave. Bushfires, you've got heat, you've, you've also got humidity, you've got wind and you've got dryness. That's, that's how the FFDI, the Forest Fire Danger Index, is measured. Um, so it's not just a change in one variable that matters. You know, sometimes there's changes in all of them. In saying that, I mean, there was a report put out by CSIRO, I think 10 or 15 years before the fire, saying, well, you know, in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, we expect on average to see higher fire danger weather. And that's exactly what was what was what happened. Um, on top of that, you know, there, there, there's evidence that a lot of evidence that the bushfire season is increasing and now going into springtime. Um, and these fires started, you know, before summer. So sometimes that happens. That's not necessarily 
you know, the, the bushfire season starting super duper early, but that's where most of the fires were. It was definitely before Christmas or around Christmas, New Year. They didn't really go into January or February, but also a lot of it was happening in, in November too. So we're having that springtime effect. So, you know, and a lot of that's driven by the fact that the temperatures are going up because of climate change. We're having more heat waves that, you know, more rapidly dry out the fuel. Um, and also, you know, droughts can be worse, especially in certain parts of Australia due to climate change. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we didn't predict or it didn't, it didn't catch us by surprise in that way. It's, don't get me wrong, what happened was absolutely, truly catastrophic and shocking and unprecedented, yes. But I hate to say it, I wasn't really that surprised. If it didn't happen in 2019, 2020, it, you know, it may happen in a couple of years. It might have happened a couple of years before. But the conditions, at least in terms of climate change, were certainly favourable. Okay, so over to Anna. If we're saying that these extreme events aren't unforeseen, um, what are the legal implications for businesses? I think, Robin, as bushfires and other natural hazards become more foreseen rather than unforeseen, companies um, have the risk of becoming subject to large legal and reputational risks for not acting early enough. As physical events such as drought, bushfire shift from abnormal to normal over time, liability risk um, will increase. Liability often depends on the foreseeability of events happening, and it's quite likely on the basis of the climate science, but more, more recently AR6, that either the foreseeability has clearly changed or that the legal definition for foreseeability when it comes to climate hazards um, becomes looser. And by way of example of how such a duty of care can evolve, um, in the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria, the company Osnet Services was found negligent to um, because they caused a bushfire. And um, in that case, the Victorian Bushfire Royal Commission had found that the bushfire was caused by Osnet. So it's clearly more easy to prove. Um, and it's understandable that such causation and therefore negligence is um, more difficult to prove if it's caused by climate change. But that doesn't mean that businesses get a free pass. Case law and legal opinions and um, the scientific proof have been establishing that such a legal duty of care also exists for businesses when it comes to climate-related events. And this evolves as the science matures. So that's why I think the come out of AR6 is very important for any legal implications for businesses. It's a foreseeable risk for companies. And if you don't act on that, you will face legal consequences. So we now have climate events, particularly the extremes, are foreseeable. We have the litigation and duty of care on not just businesses, governments as well. Sarah, how do we bring science and business together to collaborate? Oof. That's an interesting and very tr tricky question. And I don't think it's something that we've done a lot of in the past, but it's, it's certainly time we do a lot of it now. Um, I think, you know, we speak very different languages. You know, scientists are generally conservative by nature. We generally don't know how to talk to businesses and some of us may not even want to. But I think, you know, moving forward, we need to. We've got a lot of information about, you know, what these risks mean, you know, potential uncertainties and projections, what we can say about certain extreme events compared to others, for example. And that's really important information. So if you have to disclose foreseeable risk, you know, we can help, um, you know, give you that, well, we can give you that information, which, which might help or hopefully help make your risk assessment um, much more robust. But how, how to get that going, I'm not sure. I know a lot of companies are trying to have, climate specialists in there I kind of say that in inverted commas I'm not actually sure though if they are climate specialists um you know 
people in academia, for example, this is their whole lives. You know, they've been at uni for eight years. They're at PhD level. They're a professor, you know, they've gone all the way through and they're professors now. There's a wealth of information there. However, people working, potentially employed in these positions may not have that information. So I, I guess what I'm getting at there is, don't think a lot of com companies are doing enough at the moment. They might say, oh, you know, we've got a climate person on our team, but it's just one person. Um, we need to be doing better than that. Maybe, you know, if, if someone, if a business wants to have their own in-house team, we'll make it actually a team and make it a good team and consult with academics on what that team should look like and the expertise that they should have. You know, additionally, we can, you know, a lot of us are open to working together. Um, whether it's going for grants or just, you know, in consulting or some sort of partnership, I'm not actually sure what that might look like. Um, but it certainly doesn't hurt, hurt to uh, approach us and, you know, get the discussion going. Um, I think, you know, if, if I'm really candid, I think businesses need to be doing a better job than what they currently are. Do you think on the other side, though, there's also the argument that um, climate scientists have a responsibility to make this information more accessible? That's a difficult one. So... I personally think, you know, I, I enjoy doing that. I, you know, clearly do a lot of communication activities and I think we have to make the information accessible somehow. Absolutely. But I don't think that always falls on the academics. You know, they're, they're not trained for that. They probably didn't get in their job to do that. They're there to do the research and they think differently to breaking down information for a general audience or for, for a particular purpose like businesses. That's not really what they're trained to do. You know, whether or not there's a middle person to do that, I, we, you know, for example, in the centre I work at, we have a couple of knowledge brokers and there's a go-between, like you, Robin. <laughs> you know, that's 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 a great set. Someone, I guess someone who's a tran translator, right? That's that's what we need. Um, yes, academics might, especially in the climate sphere, we might need to work with knowledge brokers. I think that's perfectly acceptable. But I don't think the owners should particularly be on academics to do that. I mean, you know, our job is usually just research, well, not just research, it's research, going for grants, teaching, add on something like communication, which a lot of academics probably don't want to do or don't have the skills to do, probably going to send them over the edge. But having that sort of middle person there, I think is, is probably a, a better um, a better option. So with bushfires, um, we've discussed at length the impacts that they have. They're very real, they're very destructive. But if we look at, say, heat waves, which we can also describe as an extreme event, the individual and systemic impacts of those can be a little more nuanced. Sarah, can you describe some of the impacts that we might experience during a heat wave? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> exactly. And, and so may, maybe let's, okay, let's, let's narrow it down a little bit to say um, the effect on, say, infrastructure, something like the energy network and uh, say the health of an outdoor worker so i'm going to start with human health i might just talk more about just an outdoor worker so currently when extreme heat is experienced usually with a heat wave it lasts for a few days at least it's not just a single day most people can cope with a single day of heat if the heat persists usually it's the old the sick the very young and pregnant women who are affected most by the heat um, however, that's likely to shift. If we're experiencing these heat waves more often and more intense, they go for longer. People who work outside, people who exercise in 45 degree heat, um, people who are outside just having fun, you know, barbecue on the weekend, for example, they're more, they will be more affected by the extreme heat. So that kind of shift in the population of who will be affected 
can and will change, especially as climate change intensifies. So, you know, you get heat exhaustion, that may change into heat stroke. We're very, our bodies are very fine-tuned to a certain temperature threshold. And if we go a few degrees over that, we're literally toast. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. The interesting thing about how it affects human health is you don't usually die from heat. It usually exacerbates an underlying condition. Perhaps if you, you're sick with heart disease or, you know, have an issue with your kidneys, it will exacerbate that condition that will usually be the cause of death. You know, if you do, you know, suffer from heat stroke, that's still not usually put on the death certificate. It's usually something else. So it's sometimes really hard to quantify the actual effect um, of mortality rates due to heat. Um, the electricity supply. So during hotter weather, the ability for the network to transmit electricity um, reduces greatly. Um, and you know, there's also the added pressure of everyone who can afford one turning on their air conditioning to remain cool. And not only do they turn them on, a lot of people turn them on to like 16 or 18 degrees, not something that's perfectly livable, such as 27 degrees, especially if you're in a city like Sydney or Brisbane. That puts a huge strain on the network. I remember being in Sydney and there was calls for people to turn up their air conditioners, not necessarily turn them off, but turn them up. So they weren't straining the energy um, network as much. Of course, if you've got solar panels on your roof, that helps. You're not straining the network. Um, but there's certainly issues not only with population increase, but with heat increase going to the future. At a, given the far-reaching impacts of heat waves that Sarah has just described, what can businesses do to better understand their risk profile? I think a starting point for businesses should be to incorporate climate-related risks into their risk registers and governance policies. Such a climate hazard risk that Sarah just described will likely place a risk very high or red-colored on the company's risk register. Think of organizational health and safety. Um, doing this would increase their understanding of and capacity to deal with climate-related risks. And it's a crucial component that the company board has oversight of these risks. But then secondly, a next step, obviously, is to act on these risks and modify business strategies to make them more robust and resilient. Um, it's not just a tick box exercise in that sense. It's rather an opportunity to be responsive and proactive rather than defensive and reactive. In recent months, we've seen court rulings demanding climate action by both federal entities and corporations. What are your messages to business, Anna, around the significance of such rulings? I'm thinking in particular um, the landmark case in the Netherlands uh, with Shell. Yes, the argumentation in the Shell case was very interesting. It was, um, again, this breach of the duty of care that was the, the reasoning was based on the best available science, which at the time was actually the IPCC's fifth assessment report, so AR5. Um, this science has only expanded since AR6 came out. And the court held that Shell's unsound and insufficient climate policy might be seen as an event giving rise to the damage. And so my advice to businesses would be to acknowledge that this duty of care is legally evolving and it has now also been tested successfully in courts. This means that simply disclosing climate-related risks is no longer sufficient. Shell has been legally ordered to reduce its emissions significantly in line with the Paris Agreement. And company directors should take proactive steps and disclose not only risks, but also take positive action and design and implement strategies to deliver on their climate commitments. 
At the national level in May 2021, the Federal Court of Australia found that the Commonwealth Minister for the Environment owed a legal duty of care to avoid causing personal injury to children when deciding in its approval of a coal mine expansion in New South Wales. It's very easy for us to look at the findings of AR6 um, and see news stories, the, the media streams of the outcome of extreme events, such as the heatwave in Canada, where many people lost their lives due to heat-related illnesses, such as the displacement of our fellow Australians during the bushfires. Sarah, given what we see in AR6, given the impacts of these extreme events, how do you remain inspired and determined? Inspired? I know, I guess I kind of think, well, no, not I kind of think, I do think Something's got to give, and it's got to give hopefully sometime soon. So I would have liked to have thought that Black Summer was the catalyst for change in this country. Unfortunately, it just led to a gas recovery, but that's another conversation. Something's going to give. Something's going to happen. It's just going to be so bad that we simply cannot ignore this anymore. Now, I I hope that it's not, you know, lives aren't lost in that sort of catastrophe, but I do think that's what it's going to take to kind of, kick out butts into gear to really be serious about reducing emissions. Sure, we're not going to reach 1.5 or even 2 degrees global warming. We're actually going to overshoot that and go further. But I am pretty certain or pretty optimistic that we will limit warming to well below 4 or 5 degrees Celsius. I'm I'm hopeful and I I think it will be somewhere between 3 and 3.5 degrees Celsius, globally speaking. Yes, that really drastically increases the frequency and intensity of many extremes, not just extreme heat. Um, but that's better than what would happen if we do reach four or five degrees Celsius. So I think, yes, we should be doing absolutely can, absolutely everything we can as soon as we can. That's, that's you know, that shouldn't have to be said. That's, you know, we, we should be doing more and doing it sooner. But I don't think it will be as bad as the highest or the worst emission scenario that the IPCC uses. Um, it's just unfortunate that it might take a couple more c- catastrophes to get there. Um, I guess I'm just motivated because... You know, being a mum of two young kids and looking at their peers, so, you know, I'm not just interested in my own kids' well-being, I'm thinking about their entire generation. They didn't cause this. They didn't destroy the planet like we have or, you know, and like the people before us have. Why should they inherit a world that's worse, in worse condition than what we inherited? Um, You know, we need to do better. It's plain and simple. It's not fair on them. It's certainly not fair on the planet. So we just simply need to do better. And that's, that's I guess, what keeps me going, that there's got to be something better than this. There's got to be a better response than this. So let's just keep going until that response actually comes into action. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Anna. To our listeners, this is the second in a three-part series we are running on the IPCC's AR6 report. Look out for our third podcast, which features a conversation with Juliet Bell, who leads the Climate Resilience Enterprise mission at the CSIRO. If you have any questions arising from today's discussion, please feel free to contact Energetics via our website, or if you are a client, please reach out to your Energetics account manager. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.